Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Cato Institute, and welcome, Michael. Uh, my name is Dan Griswold. I'm the director of the Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato, where our mission is to educate the public and policymakers on the benefits of free trade, including uh, labor mobility, uh, and the costs of protectionism, uh, which brings us to our, our subject today. Uh, and, and by the way, just one program note, if, uh, if you have one of these, if you could at least put it on the silent vibrate uh, setting, or better yet, uh, turn it off, thanks. Uh, immigration seems to have gone uh, somewhat quiet on the campaign trail and in the halls of Congress, uh, but I think that's a, a temporary lull. There are huge uh, problems uh, that remain to be tackled in terms of the U.S. immigration system. The Bush administration has ramped up enforcement of current uh, immigration law, but there are still an estimated 12 million people here uh, without documents. Uh, meanwhile, the number of visas available for high-skilled workers appears to be woefully inadequate. They run out uh, months before the fiscal year uh, even begins. So when Congress returns to the immigration issue, as it inevitably uh, will, uh, we are going to have to make some uh, very important choices about how to fix an immigration system that is obviously not working uh, the way it's intended. And our forum today will try to provide uh, some answers. And we have two uh, very fine uh, speakers today. Our first speaker uh, in a moment will be Jason Riley, who is the author of today's uh, featured book, Let Them In, The Case for Open Borders, Six Common Arguments Against Immigration and Why They Are Wrong. Uh, Jason is a member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board, where he's worked uh, since 1994. He's researched and written editorials on a wide range of subjects, but uh, many of them on immigration over the years, and he's done a lot of firsthand reporting on the immigration issue. He's also appeared on a number of uh, prominent TV shows, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, uh, ABC's uh, World News Tonight. He even went toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with Lou Dobbs a couple of weeks ago an incredulous Lou Dobbs, and, uh, and Jason uh, held his own very nicely. Thank you very much. Um, his new book, Let Them In from Gotham Books, uh, is a much-needed addition to the immigration debate. You know, I did a web search uh, a little while ago of immigration groups, and there were 55 of them that, in, to varying degrees, are opposed to immigration, and only 10 of them that were listed as being uh, pro-immigration. Uh, cable TV and talk radio uh, seem to be dominated uh, by the immigration uh, skeptics, and most of them, frankly, from the, the right side of the political spectrum. Well, Jason Riley has written a book that addresses the objections to immigration from a free market, limited government uh, perspective, which I think fills a very important niche uh, in the debate. This book is also very timely. Uh, as you know, immigration reform uh, failed twice in Congress in recent years, in 2006 and 2007, and uh, realistically, there's probably not a chance that this Congress is going to bring it up in this election year. Uh, but 2009 may present another opportunity uh, to get it right. Both major uh, political party candidates, Senator McCain and Senator Obama, have embraced comprehensive immigration reform of one form or another, including expanding uh, opportunities for legal immigration for low-skilled workers. The next Congress uh, next year may at last be ready to work with the new president, whoever it may be, he may be, 
to finally tackle uh, this problem. Agree with him or disagree, Jason Riley has left virtually no aspect of the immigration debate unexamined. I've been following this issue for more than a decade uh, for Cato, and I thought I'd heard all the arguments uh, against immigration, but he uh, exposed me to a few more, and he has thoughtfully examined them all. One of the most important contributions of this book is how Jason weighs in on the cultural and the ethnic uh, aspects of immigration. I think he's going to focus on that today. Some of opponents of immigration have tried to play the race card and say that immigration is particularly harmful uh, to black uh, Americans. Uh, Jason does a good job of sorting through the debate uh, by citing the latest research, and he also speaks with uh, certain authority when, it, when he writes that it is what is troubling many black communities is not immigration, uh, but bad schools, failed leadership, business and labor restrictions, negative cultural norms that discourage achievement. This is a, another very important contribution of this book. Before I turn the podium over to Jason uh, and then our commentator, Michael Barone, uh, let me quote one of my favorite passages from the book. Not a very long quote, so just bear with me here. Uh, at the end of the chapter on assimilation, uh, Jason offers some advice to our conservative friends who are rightly concerned about some of the excesses of multiculturalism. This is what he writes. Conservatives who want to seal the border because the liberal elites have taken over are directing their wrath at the wrong people. The problem isn't the immigrants, it's the elites and their multiculturalist predilections who want to turn America into a loose federation of ethnic groups. Conservatives are right to complain about bilingual education advocacy, anti-American Chicano studies professors, Spanish language ballots, ethnically gerrymandered voting districts, La Raza's big government agenda, and so forth. But these problems weren't created by the women changing linen in your hotel room or the men building homes in your neighborhood. Keep the immigrants. Deport the Columbia faculty. Please, uh, please join me in welcoming Jason Riley. Good afternoon, and thank you for that introduction, that generous introduction, Dan. Um, I'd also like to thank Cato uh, for their support uh, for this book project, and I want to thank um, Michael Barone for being here as well and participating. I appreciate it. Um, and thank all of you for, for coming here today. As, as Dan mentioned, I, uh, Lou Dobbs was kind enough to have me on his show the day the book came out a few weeks ago, and, and he was unpersuaded of my arguments, <laughs> which will come as no surprise. Um, but it was quite an experience. Uh, before you go on, and I was the fourth or fifth segment that night, uh, they put you in a side room where you can watch the show until it's your turn. Uh, they call it the green room, and there's a little television in there, so you can, um, you can watch the show as it, as it progresses. And before each commercial break, uh, Dobbs would tell his, his viewers what's coming up. And he kept saying, after each break, or before each break, I should say, um, in coming up, we have an author who wants to let even more illegal immigrants into the country. The title of his book says it all, folks, Let Them In. So um, we'll be right back. <laughs> <And> <laughs> So I, I, I got out there and didn't really know where to start, so I want to thank the, 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 the Cato Institute for um, uh, letting me uh, expand 
and flesh out some of these arguments. I like to do so at every chance I get. Um, the subtitle of the book is the, is the Case for Open Borders. And the case for open borders is pretty straightforward. It's the case for letting the free market determine the level of immigration in this country. Right now, that determination is made by politicians and public policymakers who set arbitrary quotas, so many from this country, so many from that country. And like most efforts in Soviet-style central planning, uh, this has been a complete disaster. We have thriving markets in document fraud and human smuggling. We have dead bodies in the Arizona desert. And we have 12 million-plus illegal immigrants in the country. I think our public policymakers would do better to let the law of supply and demand make the determination about how many of these workers we need in the country. And I think that they can do that by putting in place uh, guest worker programs uh, and other mechanisms that allow the free market to work. Um, This will do a couple things. First of all, it will reduce illegal immigration, which is the goal. Uh, If we give people more legal ways to enter the country, I believe most of them will use it. These are economic migrants, first and foremost. They're coming for the work. We have the jobs. They need the work. Let them come legally, and they will come legally. They have no incentive to be in here in the the country illegally. But secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, this will free up our homeland security resources to focus on real threats. Right now, they're chasing down people coming here to burp our babies and mow our lawns and chop off chicken heads and meatpacking plants. Right now, they're raiding meatpacking plants in Iowa, where where the unemployment rate is 3.5%. How many al-Qaeda cells have they uncovered? I would much rather our homeland security be focused on drug dealers or gang members or potential terrorists. Right now, they can't do that. Right now, they're stretched very thin, chasing down people coming here to work. So I think not only will moving to a market-oriented immigration policy Uh, reduce illegal immigration. I also think it will make this country safer. Now, the subtitle of the book, um, well, one of the other subtitles are the common arguments um, that people make about immigrants that I take on on a chapter-by-chapter basis. And I do that because my experience has been that once I get done explaining the case for open borders, uh, the goalposts sort of move. And people say, well, we don't really need uh, these immigrants, even if they're coming legally anyways. And they run off a a string of reasons why. Uh, And so that explains the second subtitle of the book, Six Common Arguments Against Immigration and Why They Are Wrong. Uh, I've been working at the Journal for almost 14 years. I write editorials mostly about politics and public policy. And this includes everything from the presidential race to education reform to telecommunications and so forth. Um, In any case, when I'm at a dinner party or some other social function and someone asks me what I write about, if I don't feel like talking, I tell them I write about public policy. And usually they want to talk about themselves instead. (laughs) If I do feel like talking, I tell them I write about immigration. And chances are they want to hear more. I've been covering immigration for about seven years as a journal editorial writer, and it consistently generates more mail than any other subject the journal editorial page writes about. More than when we write about abortion or gay marriage 
or race or gun control. And keep in mind, most readers um, write when they disagree with you, not when they agree, and they usually don't, don't hold back. The Wall Street Journal's position on immigration is of a piece with the paper's general philosophy, uh, which I happen to share. We favor free people and free markets, and that includes free and flexible labor markets. Now, most people who self-identify as free market conservatives claim to share this belief, and usually they do. But one glaring exception, in my experience, seems to be when the topic turns to immigration. No self-respecting free market advocate would ever dream of supporting laws that interrupt the free movement of goods and services across international borders. But when it comes to laws that hamper the free movement of workers who produce those goods and services, too many conservatives today abandon their free market principles. Adam Smith and David Ricardo and John Stuart Mill give way to Lou Dobbs. Ronald Reagan gives way to Pat Buchanan. Principled conservatism gives way to a sort of reactionary populism. Some of us find this troubling. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is to show that there's absolutely no inconsistency in advocating for both free markets and open immigration. Over the years, I've heard the same anti-immigrant arguments over and over. They're stealing jobs, they're depressing wages, they're filling our jails and prisons, they're overburdening our welfare system, and so on. Yet time and again, my own research and reporting has found these claims to be either way overblown or simply counterfactual. Uh, Two quick examples. If your go-to person on immigration is Lou Dobbs or Sean Hannity or Bill O'Reilly or Laura Ingram or Rush Limbaugh, you might be convinced that we are in the midst of an illegal alien crime wave. Yet the evidence does not support this claim. Because many immigrants to the U.S., especially Mexicans and other Central Americans, are young men who arrive with very low levels of formal education, popular stereotypes tend to associate them with higher rates of crime and incarceration. But the fact is that numerous studies by independent researchers and government commissions over the past 100 years have repeatedly found that immigrants are less likely to commit crimes or be behind bars than the native-born. In fact, among men between 18 and 39, who of course comprise the vast majority of the prison population, the incarceration rate of natives is five times higher than the incarceration rate of immigrants. And this is not because law-abiding model immigrants from India and China are compensating for crimes among uneducated, low-skill Latino immigrants. For every ethnic group, without exception, incarceration rates are lowest for immigrants. And yes, this holds true for the Mexicans, the Salvadorans, the Guatemalans, who make up the vast majority of the illegal population in the U.S., Another quick fact. Between 1994 and 2005, the illegal immigrant population of the U.S. is estimated to have doubled to about 12 million. Yet according to the Department of Justice, over that same period, violent crime in the U.S. fell by a third. Property crimes fell by 26 percent. And they didn't just fall on average nationwide. They fell in those cities with the highest immigrant populations, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Miami. They fell in border towns that experienced the most illegal immigration, like El Paso and San Diego. The bottom line is that the problem of crime in the U.S. is not caused or even aggravated by immigrants, regardless of their legal status. But the misperception that the opposite is true persists. 
among policymakers, among the media, and among the general public. Keep this in mind the next time you hear Bill O'Reilly use some undocumented drunk driver to claim we're in the midst of an illegal alien crime wave. Another popular belief is that immigrants come here to go on the dole, but the statistics show that welfare caseloads have in fact fallen as illegal immigration has risen. Since the high water mark in 1994, which was just before Bill Clinton signed the welfare reform legislation, the nation's welfare caseload has declined by 60%. Virtually every state in the country has reduced its caseload by at least a third, and some by as much as 90%. And not only have the numbers of people on welfare plunged, but the number of legal and as illegal and, and legal immigration has increased. But overall poverty, child poverty, black child poverty, and child hunger have all decreased. Apparently, immigrants don't drive welfare caseloads any more than they drive crime in this country. Yet we are constantly told that the opposite is the case. Now, I continue to be amazed that immigration is such a controversial subject in America. I can understand the temptation to exploit the issue politically and play to people's fears and anxieties. Politicians do it with free trade, for example, all the time. But since so many Americans have a personal attachment to the issue, um, I'm kind of surprised that it works as effectively as it does. To me, it seems pretty self-evident that the immigrants have benefited the U.S., and I'm not just talking about software engineers from India and China. I'm also talking about low-skill immigrants who came from Eastern and Southern Europe in the 19th century and early 20th century, and those who are coming from Latin America today. And by the way, the rate of immigration from Europe in the 19th and early 20th centuries far exceeded the rate of immigration from Mexico today. Back then, we had far more immigrant arrivals relative to the size of the U.S. population at the time. Um, Dan Griswold here at Cato has done some excellent research on the issue, so I'll use his. In the 1990s, legal and illegal immigration from Mexico averaged an estimated 4.2 million, which works out to about 1.5 immigrants per 1,000 U.S. citizens. By comparison, in the middle of the 19th century, the U.S. absorbed 3.6 Irish immigrants per 1,000 U.S. residents. From 1840 to 1890, the rate of German immigration was greater in every decade than the current flow of Mexicans. And from 1901 to 1910, Russian, Italian, and Austro-Hungarian immigration each surpassed the current rate of Mexico immigration. If the history of migration proves anything, it's that there's nothing more common than to have poverty-stricken immigrants become prosperous in a new country and make that country more prosperous as well. And the U.S. experience is no different. One of the goal of this book was to put today's uh, debate into some kind of historical perspective. Scapegoating foreigners for domestic problems, real or imagined, is something of an American tradition. And I make an argument for why today's immigrants aren't different. They're just newer. Any student of history knows that the complaints and criticisms lodged against Latinos were thrown at previous immigrant groups, but many of us forget this past or try and rewrite it. And I'd like to spend the balance of my time talking about assimilation, because it's something that many social conservatives are concerned with. Uh, it's a fear that America um, uh, is incapable of assimilating the latest wave from Mexico the way we did the Asians and the Europeans earlier. And I'm going to use the Irish experience as a historical comparison to today's Latinos because there are a lot of similarities. And frankly, uh, 
I've come to believe that if America could assimilate the 19th century Irish immigrants, we can probably assimilate anybody. We've all heard the stories about no Irish need apply signs and store windows and the like, but I'd like to give you a slightly more vivid portrait of Irish immigration in the 1800s, which is laid out in some detail in Tom Sowell's excellent book, Ethnic America. A French traveler in the 1830s returned from a trip that included America and Ireland and wrote the following. I've seen the Indian in his forest and the Negro in his chains and thought, as I contemplated their pitiable condition, that I saw the very extreme of human wretchedness. But I did not then know the condition of unfortunate Ireland. This was not an exaggeration. Slaves in the U.S. had longer life expectancy than the Irish peasants who emigrated here. Slaves also ate better and lived in cabins built with sturdier materials and better ventilation. Like other early immigrant groups, the Irish came over in the hold of cargo ships, which were built with little regard for the needs of passengers. There were no toilet facilities, for example, so filth and odor and disease were common. In 1847, about 20% of Irish immigrants fleeing the potato famine died en route to the U.S. or just after they arrived here. By comparison, the loss of life of slaves traveling on British vessels in the 19th century averaged about 9%. Why was the Irish death rate more than double the rate of slaves? Simple, it was economics. Those slaves were property. Somebody had a stake in keeping them alive. No one cared what happened to the Irish immigrants. It's also worth noting that the Irish were coming from a country where more than 80% of the population was rural, yet they were settling in cities like New York and Boston and Philadelphia. And they met resistance at the time from those who said, America has no use for this unskilled labor. We're in the middle of an industrial revolution. The future is factories, not farms. They were told they would never assimilate to an urban capitalist society. Any of this sound familiar? Of course, the naysayers were wrong. The U.S. did have a need for this unskilled labor. And this increase in workers did not go to waste. Supply created its own demand something conservatives usually believe in, except when the topic turns to immigration. The Irish did jobs that were considered too lowly or too dangerous for natives, even for slaves, who again were considered too valuable. They built roads and canals and railroads. They worked in mines. When Frederick Law Olmsted, the famous designer of New York City Central Park, once inquired about the division of labor between slaves and Irish workers on a riverboat in Alabama, he was told, The niggers are worth too much to risk here. If the patties are knocked overboard or get their backs broke, nobody loses anything. The phrase, jobs Americans won't do, has taken on a negative connotation today, as if it's an an insult to Americans or the Protestant work ethic. This is nonsense. Throughout history, immigrants the world over have performed jobs that the natives spurned, whether it was Indians in South Africa, or Italians in Argentina, Turks in Germany. Not only did the Irish do jobs that were considered beneath Americans, they did jobs that were considered beneath American slaves. Irish women typically worked as domestic servants. What do I mean by typically? In 1855, 99% of all domestic servants in New York City were Irish women. As late as 1920, 80% of all Irish women working in America were domestic servants. That's a snapshot of where the Irish started. Now let me give you a snapshot of where they ended up, at least so far. 
The Irish did assimilate, of course, and then some. They produced writers and painters and presidents. They produced doctors and lawyers and school teachers. They produced civic leaders and businessmen, including Henry Ford, whose father fled the Irish potato famine and who would go on to revolutionize transportation in America. According to the latest census figures, as of 2006, 31% of Irish Americans had at least a bachelor's degree versus just 27% of the nation as a whole. And the median annual income for Irish Americans was $54,000 versus just $48,000 for all households. Apparently, the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of all those hardworking Irish immigrants who would never amount to anything turned out okay. And although the Irish experience has been replicated by other large immigrant groups from Europe and Asia, this history is often ignored or played down when we discuss Latino immigration today. The opposite should be the case. The next time you hear someone say that the Mexicans lack the skills to make it in our advanced economy, they start off way too far down the socioeconomic ladder to ever make it here, that they will forever be stuck doing menial jobs that we don't need done anyway. Remember the Irish. It's sometimes argued that Latinos hang on to their native Spanish and that this is proof that they aren't assimilating. We're told that past immigrant groups quickly adopted English and that the prevalence of Spanish-speaking Latinos today is a situation that America has never faced before. We're told that Hispanics cordon themselves off in barrios with their own stores and restaurants in an attempt to preserve their culture instead of adopting ours. Well, this argument is nothing new, and it's no more valid today than it was when Benjamin Franklin was making it 250 years ago. Franklin complained that the German immigrants, who he called the most stupid of their race, were too plentiful. In 1751, he wrote, Why should Pennsylvania, founded by the English, become a colony of aliens who will shortly be so numerous as to Germanize us instead of us anglifying them, and who will never adopt our language and customs? Franklin was one of the most enlightened men of his day. Yet on immigration, he sounds like Lou Dobbs or Pat Buchanan or some conspiracy theorist. And the reason is that he was living in the midst of a wave of German immigration, and he lacked perspective. In 18th century America, in Franklin's America, it was possible to travel from Pennsylvania to Georgia and speak only German. The Germans had preserved their language and culture in socially enclosed enclaves strung along hundreds of miles through the Cumberland Valley, the Shenandoah Valley, and the Carolinas. Historians report that even into the 19th century, German immigrants lived largely to themselves in German-speaking communities with numerous German-language newspapers and periodicals and their own special foods, drinks, and social organizations. During the Civil War, there were all German units in the Union Army with commands being given in German. Again, the point I'm making here is that today's immigrants from Latin America aren't really any different in terms of behavior patterns. They're just newer. America has been through all of this before. With each new wave, there's a fear that the country is being overwhelmed, that the latest immigrant group will change America more than America will change the immigrant group. Of course, the Germans clearly influenced our culture. They gave us kindergarten and marching bands and Christmas trees, among other things. And I'm sure some people here today have German ancestry, but I doubt many of you speak fluent German. Let me give one last example of an argument used today to paint Latino immigrants as somehow unique. It's said that Latino immigrants are different because of their proximity to their homeland, that many come just to make money and then go back home, that many aren't interested in laying down roots and becoming Americans. 
By contrast, we're told, thousands of miles of oceans separated prior immigrant groups from their homeland, so when they came, they came to stay. They were committed to becoming American. Well, that's not what the record shows. Italian immigrants started coming in substantial numbers in the late 1880s. Like the Irish, the vast majority were desperately poor, illiterate, and had no skills of seeming value to America's industrial economy. Italians were said to have an aversion to formal education. Italy had one of the highest illiteracy rates in Europe. It was particularly high in southern Italy, where most American Italians traced their ancestry. In New York, Italian labor helped build the subway system, but they were also employed as what were called rag pickers in the city dumps. Their job was to go through the city's garbage and find salvageable items. In 1910, Italian men earned less annually than either white or black men. Italian immigrants to the U.S. and elsewhere also had a habit of returning home after a period. This was planned from the outset. Travel abroad, make some money, go back home. If you run out of money, go abroad and work again. In the immigration literature, these temporary migrants are known as sojourners, and Italian sojourners pop up all over the world. Between 1876 and 1976, around 26 million people left Italy and headed to Western Europe and the Americas. Around 8.5 million, or around a third, eventually returned home. Altogether, about 5 million Italians emigrated to the U.S. between 1880 and 1930. Of these, 2 million returned home. An estimated 63% of the Italians who came between 1902 and 1923 returned to Italy. And Italians weren't the only sojourners. 46% of Hungarians went back. So did 36% of Slovenians, 48% of the French, 46% of the Greeks. There's a whole book written about this by a man named Mark Wyman. It's called Round Trip to America. The immigrants return home to Europe. Something like a third of European newcomers returned home in the period leading up to World War I. Why is none of this ever discussed when we complain about Latino immigrants who want to work here for a period and then go back home? You'd think no one had ever done this before. And by the way, there may not be an ocean between the U.S. and Latin America, but many Latino immigrants are, in fact, traveling thousands of miles to reach their destinations in the U.S. We know this because of the remittances they send back home. The Latino immigrants you find in Omaha, Chicago, and Seattle, for example, typically hail from the rural Mexican state of Michoacan, which is just east of Mexico City, the capital. Michoacan is more than 1,500 miles from Chicago, more than 2,000 miles from Seattle. Mexican immigrants in Boston tend to come from the Mexican state of Jalisco, a little farther north. And those in New York come from Puebla, a state that is south of the capital and more than 2,000 miles away. Let's just say these folks aren't popping back home for the weekend. My purpose in bringing up these historical comp comparisons is not to argue over who had the worst experience. The point is to show that the arguments against Mexican immigration today are old hat. Mexicans aren't facing anything new. And the history tells us that the obstacles they do face are not insurmountable. Um, I'll stop there. I'm running out of time. But uh, let's listen to Michael Brown for a while. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Jason. And we uh, will we'll have time for Q&A, so, so hold those questions. Our commentator today is one of the best-known and well-respected political commentators 
uh, in Washington. Michael Barone is a senior writer at U.S. News and World Report, a visiting uh, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and the principal co-author of the Almanac of American Politics, which I'm sure uh, many people in this room are familiar with. He's also a, a, a ubiquitous uh, face on Fox News and other uh, television networks, especially during the political season, which seems to be about year-round these days, doesn't it? You're here. Uh, and he is author of a terrific political history of the United States, uh, the 1990 book, Our Country, The Shaping of America, from Roosevelt to Reagan. And especially relevant to our topic today, he wrote the 2001 book, The New Americans, How the Melting Pot Can Work Again, which I understand has recently been uh, republished in paperback. Please join me in welcoming Michael Barone. Well, I want to salute Jason on the publication of his book. And funny you should mention my book. Uh, (laughs) The New Americans, How the Melting Pot Can Work Again, uh, it covers uh, some of the same uh, history that Jason covers and, and makes as its central point that uh, we're not at a totally different place on immigration, that uh, minorities of today tend to resemble uh, immigrant groups of 100 years ago with blacks resembling Irish in my book, uh, Latinos resembling Italians, and Jason just made that point, and um, uh, Asians resembling Jews. In each case, the resemblance is true only up to a point, but uh, it's, uh, the, the, the point I wanted to make was that, uh, in fact, we are not dealing with an unprecedented uh, situation, but rather one Americans have dealt before. And the other point I wanted to make uh, is to put in a plug for assimilation. Americanization. Now, of course, when you bring up the term like Americanization on some campuses now, in their minds, uh, it equals Nazification or something. Uh, In fact, uh, you know, I think uh, our elites have been putting barriers in the way of immigration. And the very fact that they are sparks and stimulates and strengthens uh, the uh, spirits and, and motivations of some of those who want to limit immigration. And they will say to me, look, you know, uh, it's all very, everybody assimilated the way you want, that's fine. But those university uh, media and corporate elites uh, don't want that, and they're preventing it. And therefore, we should not have high immigration because we can't assimilate people as we did in the past. It's something, you know, I have a concern about. uh, But I think ultimately, uh, in most cases, the good sense of the people uh, overwhelms the nonsense of the elites. And uh, the. this and, and, the, and the process does continue for the most part. But uh, um, Jason brought up the history of immigration in this country, and uh, uh, I just want to amplify on a couple of points that he made. Um, the decade, I believe that the decade of highest immigration in American history as a percentage of the previous population uh, is certainly not today. It's not the 1900 and decade. It's the 1850s with those Irish and German immigrants that, uh, that Jason was giving such vivid descriptions of. You had uh, an enormous immigration as against preexisting policies. If you read uh, James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, which is 
mainly mainly about the Civil War, but it's also it's it's part of a series. So his assignment was to write about eighteen, you know, eighteen fifty or eighteen fifty five to nineteen sixty five, and he's got quite a good vivid short chapter on the immigration of the eighteen fifties. Uh, I suppose Lou Dobbs could say, yeah, that was the biggest decade, and the country fell apart after it, uh, <laughs> split in two, and had a civil war. As McPherson makes plain, while immigration did contribute to the idea of a country spinning out of control, uh, it certainly was not the proximate cause of the Civil War. Uh, and uh, it, 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 but uh, but I think that perspective is valuable. Uh, and bringing in, I brought in Benjamin Franklin uh, as well. Um, I think there may have been some internal politics in Franklin's complaints against the Germans because the Germans, well, the, 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 the Quaker proprietors of the col- of Pennsylvania colony wanted to bring in people who shared their religious views. That was the origin of some of the German sects there. Uh, and Franklin, who was not a Quaker uh, and did not, was against the propri- uh, critical of the proprietors, uh, may have thought that you know this is stacking the de- demographic deck in favor of the uh, opposition party. I got to read up more on Franklin than do it. But I was, one very vivid symbol in America that you can see just about everywhere in the country of the German migration down that Appalachian Trail, uh, which is the name of one of the leading banks in this country, Wachovia. Wachovia, uh, the original Wachovia came out of a Moravian settlement in what is now Winston-Salem, South Carolina, uh, North Carolina, which is in fact a preserved village. You can see where these German immigrants settled the nucleus uh, of what is now Winston-Salem, and Wachovia Bank takes its name from that. So uh, there are remnants of that migration around uh, throughout our, our history. Um, Jason did not talk uh, specifically about public policy uh, and what, at least in this presentation, and about what should be done. Uh, and I, I take it that, uh, that the book is an argument for uh, open immigration. Uh, presumably we should be able to screen people coming into the country for, uh, to try to keep terrorists, uh, criminals out, uh, people who for some uh, legitimate public health reason uh, pose a menace to us. I mean, we, do we have to admit people with tuberculosis? I'm... I'm not sure that we really want to do that, uh, but the uh, uh, and and otherwise basically let people come and go on their passports. That's the vision that you're giving me, or at least you want to move in that direction. Well, I think the free market can determine how many of the workers we need, but I think it should be labor-based, economic-based. Okay, I, I I myself don't go that far in, in the argument. Uh, I'm not sure I want to make arguments against this theoretically, but I think as a practical matter, uh, Congress uh, and uh, even uh, either of our two presidential candidates uh, is going to want to set some limits on immigration. Now, I do agree with Jason that uh, the way the government doesn't anticipate immigration patterns at all. Uh, if you go back to the debate on the 1965 Immigration Act, which changed the uh, country quotas, um, what you see is that it's, uh, they failed to anticipate what was coming ahead. The 1921-24 Immigration Act set quotas of immigrants by country, uh, and, they, as, and they gave them the percentage of, that that group had been, or people from that country had been to the population in 1890. 
Uh, in other words, they were out to eliminate Italian, Polish, Jewish, other Eastern European immigration that really didn't get started in great numbers until after 1890. Uh, and they wanted those people out of the country, Irish and Germans, uh, much more uh, uh, liberal quotas, UK, uh, and so forth. Uh, France did not get a high quota because none of the... We've never had high French immigration for whatever reasons, and I think it shows one of the limitations of markets, even when the French uh, could make more money here. And I think it's for the same reason, you know, when you go to Europe or even other continents and stuff, Latin America, you can always tell a French tourist group because there's the guide with the umbrella, and there's, the, and there's, you know, parler français and so forth with each other. They're a little cloud of France uh, in Florence or Prague or uh, Mexico City. Uh, they're going there, and uh, they, they just don't want to leave, uh, leave the cocoon. I think there are cultural factors involved in immigration that, is, uh, that we don't fully understand, and in fact, which I'm going to uh, work on trying to understand in my next book about American migrations, internal as well as immigrant. Um, so they, the, the, the 1924 law framers had a specific purpose, and in my view, rather malign purpose, uh, and uh, and they achieved that. The purpose of the people of the 65 Act was to overturn that. I mean, you had congressmen like Peter Rodino, of uh, the, that was number two on the Judiciary Committee, Manuel Seller, uh, who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, uh, you know, the sons of immigrants from Italy, Jewish immigrants. Uh, and so forth, and they basically uh, wanted to uh, raise the country quotas for the con their countrymen. They often were handling constituent requests for um, private laws that would allow the immigration of a cousin from southern Italy or, you know, a uh, displaced person, Jewish person, or whatever. Um, and they thought that they were – nobody thought we were going to get lots of immigrants from Latin America and, uh, and Asia. Robert Kennedy, when he was attorney general, testified before one of the Judiciary Committees and said there would be an initial arrival of a fair number of refugees from, uh, from Asia uh, and, uh, and perhaps Cuba, but after that, no significant migration from those reasons, regions. Uh, why did they think that? Well, I guess they thought, you know, immigrants don't come from Asia and Latin America. They come from Europe. Uh, the 65 law, before the 65 law, there actually weren't country quotas on Latin America. The 65 law imposed country codes and supposedly would have, you know, country codes, quotas that are far lower than their immigration now. Uh, what happened, the lawmakers completely failed to anticipate. Uh, they saw uh, we started to get heavy Latin migration at just about the time we had country quotas. We had much greater Latin migration than expected, because, particularly from Mexicans, uh, because the extended family uh, reunion provisions of the law provided uh, a basis for chain migration of people, uh, of relatives and people from particular villages and communities. Uh, and as Jason pointed out, you have those long-range connections, just as we had 100 years ago with particular parts of Europe and particular neighborhoods in Chicago. Uh, you get this. I mean, I was doing an article on Latinos once interviewing people in Corona, Queens, and I asked the woman where she was from. She said she was from Mexico. I said, well, where in Mexico? She said, looking as if I was such a dummy, Puebla. Everyone around here is from Puebla. Uh, <laughs> you know, that the Poblanos are in Corona. That's just how this thing works. Um, 
And so we didn't anticipate how the labor markets would work. We didn't anticipate how, uh, where immigrants would come from. Uh, there are now moves in Congress to which I have some sympathy to try to limit the extended family reunification proposals and to increase the number of high-skill immigrants that we let in uh, and make our system, in effect, more similar to those of Canada uh, and Australia, uh, which have Canada's now getting, uh, and I think Australia, immigrants, immigration as a percentage of pre-existing population larger than the United States. I think that's right, um, or approximately it's similar in any case. Yeah, yeah it's similar. It's similar rate, uh, and, uh, you know, Australia, a country that used to not want Asian immigration, has definitely changed its attitude on that. Uh, I, I would look perhaps with favor on uh, those things. Uh, what I called for in my book was to try somehow to get Congress to uh, change our immigration laws so that they work more in tandem with the labor market. I don't really have any hopes that they're going to work totally uh, on the behest of the labor market uh, in the way that Jason calls for. But I think we can do a better job. But I think we also have to anticipate that um, the future may not be like the past. Uh, one of the things that um, research on these areas tells me is that uh, nobody's very good at predicting immigration flows. Um, Right now, people are predicting that uh, the future is going to look like the last 25 years. Uh, well, maybe it will and maybe it won't. Uh, birth rates in Mexico declined very rapidly by the, around the early 1990s. Uh, and people born that year are now in an age cohort that's quite inclined to immigrate. That may have an effect. Uh, we will see. Um, we have a sort of test case with Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans... Uh, migrated in vast numbers uh, to primarily New York City in the 1950s. Uh, writers then projected that Puerto R New York would be a majority Puerto Rican uh, by 1965 or something. In 1961, net migration from Puerto Rico turned out to be zero, where it's remained ever since. People go back and forth, round-trip migration. At a point when Puerto Rican incomes reached about one-third, uh, the per capita in income levels of the mainland. Uh, will this happen with other places in Latin America? Um, it seems to me that's one possible future. Uh, I'm not sure that it will happen. Uh, but finally, I think I, I'm hesitant to take an entirely market approach to immigration because I think immigration and internal migration are produced not just in response to um, economic uh, factors, uh, but also uh, by cultural, even spiritual desires. Uh, you have, uh, in the United States from 1865 to 1940, almost no movement from south to north of either blacks or whites in a major demographic way, uh, even though wages are twice as high in the north as the south. We have 30 million people come from Europe. We get one million whites and one million blacks from the south coming north. There's something more that's happening, and there's something more to being uh, part of a nation, being a citizen, uh, than being a participant in the economic marketplace. Uh, so for those reasons, uh, I hesitate to go where I think, uh, in fact, Congress will never go. And I salute Jason Riley uh, for providing uh, a really good historic perspective and uh, some answers uh, and for smacking down Lou Dobbs. <laughs> My
Michael, thank you very much. And, and before we invite your questions, let me just exercise the prerogative of the moderator to, to ask both our, our speakers a question about politics. Uh, in fact, it's one of Jason's chapters uh, about politics. One of the arguments you hear against uh, liberalizing immigration is particularly from uh, conservatives, that one, uh, there's a lot of votes out there to be mined for Republicans on blue-collar people who are going to respond to the immigration issue. So you push that button and you get lots of these blue-collar Reagan Democrat type voters. And then uh, along with that is you, you, you let all these Hispanics in, they're going to register to vote Democratic and you're going to guarantee uh, Democratic uh, hegemony in, in the future. And I just wondered, and, and Jason, uh, I told him one of the, my favorite passages in the book where he recounts, you remember the famous uh, uh, re Republican uh, field hearings in 2006 on immigration that were going to uh, have this impact, and uh, they, they didn't seem to help the party in the, uh, the fall elections in 2006. So I thought if you could both respond, you could respond from your, your seats there. Well, um, uh, that is one of the arguments uh, that Republicans in particular make, and it's I hesitate to paint with too broad a brush. Different people bring different agendas to this debate, um, but I do take on the political argument, and it's it's basically that um, uh, Republicans ex uh, they, they sort of they assume a sort of ethnic determinism. They they assume that the Hispanic vote is lost to them, uh, like the black vote or the Jewish vote, and that it's not even worth going after these folks. It's better to coalesce the white vote, and maybe we'll get some of the white vote. Um, that appreciates the fact that we're anti-immigrant. It's, it's the belief of, of anti-immigration as a political winner for Republicans. And I, I, I think it's fool's gold. I, I think, um, um, as I say in the book, after I think I interviewed Michael Barone for this section of the book, actually, um, uh, you know, re Republicans, Bush won more than 40 percent of, um, of the Republican vote in 2004. Uh, the uh, Hispanic vote in 2004. Yeah. And um, uh, that, that was a doubling of the percentage in, inside of a decade. Um, this is a swing vote. I think Republicans should go work for it. I don't think it's lost to them. Um, and I don't think it says a lot about their message that they assume that, um, that it is lost to them. I think it can appeal. Hispanics do not vote like blacks. Uh, Puerto Ricans vote differently from, from Mexicans, and Cubans vote differently from Dominicans. Uh, uh, as Michael says in the book, um, as I quote him saying in the book, I think r r r Hispanics tend to vote like their neighbors. Um, so Hispanics who, who, who live in Republican-leaning districts tend to vote uh, vote uh, a Republican. Um, in any case, I think it's fool's gold, and I think it's fool's gold because the, the, the country is basically pro-immigrant, and, and it's because, um, you know, we all have this history, or many of us have this immigration history, uh, that, that we don't have to go back too far in our families to find an immigrant. And, and even though we might periodically sniff a little bit about the latest group, it's not something that really resonates in the American psyche very deeply. And to try and take a political advantage of this, I think, is a mistake for Republicans. The, the, uh, well, we are here in the, <clears throat> in the one jurisdiction in the country, the District of Columbia, in which, uh, in fact, Hispanics voted more Republican than white people. 
are people that are classify themselves as white, at least in the exit poll. In 2004, uh, 18% of white people in the District of Columbia voted for George W. Bush, and uh, 32, uh, 33% of Hispanic people uh, self-identified in the District of Columbia voted for George W. Bush. So the answer for the Republican Party in the District of Columbia is more illegal immigrants. Uh, the... Uh, you know, I, there are some demographic trends in the, uh, that's, that work against each party. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the Roe v. Wade, which somebody looking at the demographics said to me, some liberal said some years, oh, my gosh, they're killing little Democrats, um, to, and they're looking at who gets abortions. Um, and immigration, I think, on balance helps uh, the Democrats far less than uh, some of them hope. Um, George W. Bush does seem to have gotten 40% plus of the Latino vote in 04. Uh, John McCain is not doing as well as that, despite his record on immigration. But I would just say, you know, the Republican Party was formed in the 1850s, which, as I pointed out, was our biggest immigration decade. Uh, it, it thrived and had its biggest national majorities in the years 1894 to 1930, uh, which, hey, coincide with the years of biggest uh, immigration. Uh, so... You know, uh, what I say to people that say, well, we've got to stop immigration uh, to help the Republican Party is, hey, the barn door is, uh, is already open now. One six, 2,000 census, one out of six uh, pe uh, people living in this country under age 18 were classified as Hispanic. Uh, and, uh, you know, adapt or die. Uh, so... Uh, the other lesson from 06, and you can read my comments on this uh, from an interview I did with Rush Limbaugh for the Limbaugh letter right after the election. Uh, he said, how come immigration, you know, opponents didn't do better in this election? Uh, and, uh, you know, we have ballot propositions that were intended to be, let's say, restrictions on illegal immigrants passed in Arizona. But J.D. Hayworth... Uh, incumbent Republican, and Randy Graff, Republican nominee in a Republican-held seat, both lost to Democrats uh, after being so, uh, you know, loudly uh, opposed to current immigration <laughs> situation and want to restrict immigration. And I think one reason is that when you try to move the earth with that lever, it, the lever breaks in your hands. Uh, American voters, even while they're voting for certain ballot propositions, I think are turned off by rhetoric that strikes them as somehow... Uh, racist or derogatory to an ethnic group. They don't, uh, you can reply, look, I'm not, you know, singling people out because of their race. I'm referring to specific things, illegal things. Uh, when you're shouting, it's harder to make those caveats. Uh, and, um, you know, if you sound like you just don't like all those brown people living in those brightly colored houses, a lot of voters recoil at that, even while they're voting for those ballot propositions. At least that's what the numbers tell me. I don't fully understand the mentality. Uh, but I note that the Republican nominee for president this year is not Tom Tancredo. I'll be happy to take your questions. A couple of quick guidelines. Wait for the microphone to come around. Please give your name and affiliation. And please uh, keep it short. Get right to the question so that the maximum number of people have a chance to participate. Uh, yes, right here in the uh, the third row. Got a microphone coming. Thank you. My name is uh, Steve Hankin. I have no affiliation other than just interested. Um, I just wanted to ask you about your remark 
uh, implying that um, the immigrants who want to, who come here, a lot of them want to uh, go back to their countries. And, and I'm saying, well, why is that an issue anyway? Who cares? Why, why is that any worse or better, whether they want to come here and, and to work and go back to their countries or whether they want to come here and eventually become citizens? I agree. It's, it, it shouldn't be an issue. And my point in bringing it up is that uh, to, to show that this is not a mark of distinction uh, for Hispanic immigrants today, that that prior immigrant groups did the same thing. But, I, but, but uh, return migration, um, circular migration, uh, is, 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 has a long history in this country. Other immigrant groups did it. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, people take ideas and attitudes back to their homeland that often help those countries. Uh, and M- Michael mentioned earlier uh, that the, the 65 Act was the first to impose quotas in the Western Hemisphere. And... Of course, that's when illegal immigration began from, from Mexico, uh, uh, in, in, in particularly in the 70s. Uh, before then, it wasn't illegal to go back and forth, and a lot of people did go back and forth. Interestingly, under the Clinton administration, we stepped up enforcement barriers in, in El Paso and in um, San Diego, and we thought that the uh, Arizona desert would be a natural barrier. Um, and what we did uh, unintentionally is stop a lot of reverse migration that was going on. You'd had me- Mexicans would come for the yeah. growing season, harvest was over, you'd go back home. But when, you, when it became more expensive with the human smugglers, when it became more treacherous to make the trip, many of them stayed. Yes. They not only stayed, they migrated into other industries uh, instead of farming where you could find work year-round and where the pay was better. But when the next harvest came, our growers here needed a fresh crop from south of the border. Um, and it had the effect of increasing uh, illegal immigration in the country, which is not to say that we uh, shouldn't do more to protect the border. It's just to say that enforcement measures alone aren't, aren't the answer. We can't wall ourselves off from this problem. Just, just two data points to support uh, uh, what Jason's saying. Number one, I asked myself the question some years ago, why is the Central Valley of California, Fresno County, that whole area south of Sacramento, north of Bakersfield, why has it got population increase and very high unemployment rates? And there's your answer, because they didn't go back to Mexico for the half of the year when there's no farm work. Um, the other data point, you know, whole, you know, the, the, you know, the post-World War II era, there's whole, you know, up to at least recent decades, whole villages in southern Italy and Greece had their economy supported primarily by social security checks. <laughs> Not that that's a good thing here at the Cato Institute, but that's a- I don't, don't think we have time for a follow-up, but if you want to ca- carry on the conversation afterwards, that'd be fine. How about, how about down here? My former colleague, Casey Lartig. Okay, Casey Lartier, former Cato analyst, freelance education uh, consultant now. Just quickly, uh, to pick up on my, uh, my, uh, Mr. Barone's question, do you think there should be any type of screening done um, for health, security, oh, income? Okay, if you could just... Oh, sure. Um, oh, but wait, yeah, let, me, let me finish no. my question so yeah, I can just then let you finish. Um, within the current system, do you think that employers should be punished for hiring illegal immigrants? Third question... I actually spoke on a panel here a couple of months ago with Bruce Bartlett, and he recommended that Republicans should reach out to blacks on the issue of immigration. Yeah, I okay. – well, let's take your last question first. I've, I've read 
Bartlett, who's written some col some columns on that, and I find it a little disturbing that he thinks that the Republican Party should play blacks against Hispanics. Um, it's, it's operating on this notion, this ridiculous notion, that there's some sort of fixed number of jobs in this economy, and that a job taken by an immigrant leaves one fewer job for someone already here. And it's just, it's, it's a fallacy. There aren't a fixed number of jobs in the, um, in, in the U.S. economy. Uh, in 2006, 55 million Americans either quit their jobs or were fired, and 57 million were hired over the same period of time. We have very fluid labor markets. Bartlett knows this. I mean, he doesn't believe in this lump of labor fallacy. Um, so the, the, the fact that he would, you know, encourage Republicans to, to play that card with, with blacks. And, of course, the, the argument is that um, uh, uh, overall immigrants tend not to push Americans out of jobs, and that has to do with the, the skills these immigrants are bringing to the country. Typical immigrant is either higher skilled or lower skilled than the typical American, so they're more or less complementing our, our labor force rather than shoving aside uh, U.S. workers, and they help keep our, our labor markets flexible in that way. But at the low end of the spectrum where many black Americans are, you do have more overlap low-skill uh, immigrants competing for jobs with low-skill um, uh, black Americans. But uh, the data just isn't there to support that black Americans are being shoved aside. And the, and the proof of this is in the labor participation rates. Blacks aren't even competing for these jobs. I mean, if, if there was a correlation, you, when, when you see high levels of immigration, you'd see higher rates of black mm. unemployment. When you saw lower levels of immigration, you'd see uh, uh, lower levels of black unemployment. But there is no, no correlation. Black labor participation rates, black unemployment remains consistently bad, no matter what the level of immigration is, which shows you that blacks aren't, aren't really competing for these jobs in the first place. Um, uh, as far as screening people who come, of course we would screen people who come. We'd run background checks and so forth, health, everything we did um, um, before at Ellis Island and when we had immigrants before. We know how to do this sort of thing. We, we would put that in place. I am wary of a skills-based system, and it has to do with um, uh, what I said earlier uh, while speaking, which is that I don't know which skills our economy needs going forward. If you had advocated a skills-based system in 1920, you would have kept out a bunch of Italians and, and Irish. You would have said, we're, we're in the middle of an industrial revolution. We don't need your labor. Those people were wrong. We did need that labor. Supply created its own demand. So I can't predict which skills our economy needs going forward. Uh, I think the market... Can, can, can make that determination. I think we should put in place mechanisms uh, for that. But I, I'm very wary of a, a Canadian-based, uh, Australian, in, in Canada and Australia, it's, it's skills-based. The bureaucrats, the politicians determine which skills the economy needs. I don't think they can do that any more than I can do that. Uh, Jason, I think his third part was employer sanctions. Where, where does that fit into? <laughs> well, your, your it's view? interesting. This, if, if your fear is that immigrants are coming here to go on welfare, why punish the people who want to hire them? Um, Can I, 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 I would fix, I, I mean, obviously, yeah, we have laws in this country. This is the nation of laws. Those laws, um, I'd rather see those laws, frankly, reformed than enforced. But um, if, if, a, if, a, if an employer is breaking the law, um, they should be held accountable. But I think our politicians would would do better not to focus on enforcing bad laws and, and do better to focus on, on reforming them. Jason, are you saying that your law would be a 
visa for one year, five years, permanent, for anybody who wants to come here who passes who the passes kind of the relevant test. checks and you're talking about. And also the employer about. would have to prove. Would, you have to, would they have to have lined up an employer? Would there be, yes. there be contingent I, I on remaining with that employer? Well, we did. We did. We had a. We had something that I have in mind in place, and Stuart Anderson has done a lot of work on this, um, for those of you who know him, and I cite him in the book. Um, we had a Bracero program after World War II in this country for a, a shortage of farm workers. Uh, it worked with uh, Mexican laborers could come into the country, work, go back and forth, and so forth. Uh, the market set the number. Employers had to show they, they couldn't um, find labor domestically, and once they proved that, they could... Uh, take in workers from, from Mexico. It reduced illegal immigration from Mexico to a trickle in the late 50s and early 60s. Now, there were abuses in the system, uh, worker exploitation. Um, the unions hated it and got it shut down eventually. I wouldn't advocate bringing it back in its exact form, but the principle behind it is a sound one. Give people more legal ways to come, you reduce illegal immigration. Let me just add that I think a legalization program that Jason advocates would transform uh, enforcement. I think given the experience we had with the Bracero program, you'd see illegal immigration drop significantly. Employers would be able to hire legal workers with legal documents. And whether you had employer sanctions or not, I think they'd become a lot less important yeah. just because they wouldn't be wouldn't be and employers aren't looking to hire people illegally i mean that's a that's a myth they'd much rather um, hire people legally and most illegal immigrants in the country are working on the books by the way how about uh, back there and then we'll come back down to the front i don't want to discriminate against the folks in back hi Marcus Epstein with the american cause and team america pack this question's uh, for mr brown um, i guess both of you can out uh today's Hispanic immigrants to various uh, past ethnic groups, uh, immigrant groups, but uh, neither of you really brought up two groups which have not assimilated, who actually are not immigrant groups, which are blacks and Native Americans, and all of the past uh, immigrant groups uh, up until the 1960s. Repeat the two groups again. Uh, African Americans and Indians. They're not immigrants. We're talking about immigrants. Yeah, I just said that. I'm just saying they haven't assimilated. And if you look at most of the early... um, pro-immigration things such as the melting pot or nation of immigrants, they specifically only refer to European immigration. So my question is, do you think that there is any sort of concern about well, I think is there any difference in this? Um, the case of black Americans is, uh, is, is different. And in my book, I treated the black Americans as migrants who migrated from north to south in very large numbers from 1940 to 1965. And subsequently, and from farm to uh, cities and so forth, and uh, so basically that uh, you know assimilation for a group that started off with the handicaps of the sort they had and the Irish had take a long time. And uh, for the rest, I would refer you to my book and to Jason's comments on the Irish. There's a book out by a kind of left wing guy called "Highly Irish Became White," and one of the methods was it took a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, also. Uh, uh, another thing that points to the uniqueness of the black American experience is that black immigrants to this country uh, follow the same patterns of other immigrant groups. And it's also um, a nice response to the liberals who want to blame um, the lack of black progress on racism in this country. Yeah. Um, 
the, the, the experience of black immigrant groups from Jamaica or, or African nations and their ability to move up the socioeconomic ladder, I think, is a, um, is, is a, a nice refutation of that, of that argument put out on the left. And the two black Americans who have been seriously considered by a majority of Americans and willing to support them for president are the son of Jamaican immigrants and the son of a uh, 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 an African a Kenyan visa holder. They're products more of the British Empire <laughs> than of our own. Yeah. Uh, yes, right next next door there. Um, this question is for uh, Mr. Riley. Uh, you keep mentioning uh, SENS law, which is basically supply will create its own demand, um, and that basically if we, uh, you know, if, 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 if more people come in, that they're going to be inherently the economy will grow, and that will be kind of good. And you kind of mentioned before in the 19th century that people didn't know what would be needed. Uh, they thought that they would only need uh, industrial labor, but actually these uh, different people came in and they, they kind of uh, knew things were kind of created like that. The real question is really not so much is the economy growing. I mean, you could bring in millions of people each day and the economy could get bigger in terms of GNP, and that's great. Real question is uh, per capita GNP. And do you think that actually that is going to rise in terms of the, um, the kind of immigrants that are coming in? And then B, uh, why would why would you allow people who kind of sneak in or or, um, or illegal border crossers to kind of determine what the economy is going to have in the sense of all of these people are going to cross the border they're going to there's going to be a new supply they're going to create new demands they're going to create this kind of an economy why would you allow them to kind of determine what the economy is going to actually be like as opposed to the domestic people living here now well, I'm, I'm not sure. I, are, are you making an overpopulation argument that too many people will overpopulate the U.S.? No. Um, no, I think he's saying, one, <clears throat> even if the economy grows, is the typical American or the large majority of Americans better off because of immigration? And or, well, or do, we, do we become a nation of people who uh, make their living mowing lawns? Right. Well, that's not, that's not been the experience of... Um, low-skill immigration historically to this country. Um, as I said in my comments, uh, the, the history shows low-skill immigrants, impoverished immigrants, moving to nations and making those nations richer. Um, I mean, you, you can't name a single nation in the world today that was richer when it had half of its current population, which is not to say that um, uh, uh, prosperity and population growth go hand-in-hand. Hand. I don't believe there is a correlation there. I mean, Sub-Saharan Africa is one of the most sparsely populated regions on Earth. It's also one of the poorest. Hong Kong is one of the most densely populated regions on Earth. It's also one of the richest. I don't think there's a, there's a correlation there. Um, um, but I, I think that these are economic migrants who are acting rationally. If um, the jobs aren't here, they won't come. Um, and the other... The other thing I, I should keep in mind, um, I'm not arguing that the U.S. can't survive without access to foreign labor. We're a big, strong economy. We'd get by, just like we do when we put in place steel tariffs and so forth. Prices would adjust. Some, some, the wages of some jobs would rise to the level where certain Americans would do them and so forth. The question, but economics is about trade-offs. It's about weighing the costs and benefits of alternative courses of action. I'm arguing that we are better off with these immigrants coming than, than without them. But I'm not arguing that 
uh, the nation would go to hell in a handbasket if we sealed our borders to foreign labor. I just think we'd be worse off if we did that. Uh, I think one of the strengths of this book is that Jason not only brings a reporter's eye, he's talked to people, he's visited places, but he's up to date with the latest research, and he does cite uh, uh, the work by uh, Giovanni Perry and others uh, that have shown the vast majority of Americans have slightly higher real wages because of immigration. Not dramatically higher, but slightly higher. The, the, the two groups that tend to take a, uh, uh, suffer wage losses because of immigration are other recent immigrants, which makes sense. They're much like the new immigrants coming in, and Americans without a high school diploma, which is a whole uh, and that latter group, issue. But the, lad- the thing to keep in mind about that is that latter group, Americans without a high school diploma, is rapidly shrinking. It was 50 percent, I believe, in 1960. It, yes. In 2005, it was 12 percent working-age adults without a high school diploma. So to put in place an immigration policy to protect a rapidly shrinking minority of Americans, I think, would be a mistake. I think we have time for one more uh, question. And how about down here on the the corner? Better be a good one. Thank you. My name is Sonia Schott with Radio Valera Venezuela and Selecta Panama. I would like to know, I was wondering if the panel can make some comments on the impact of globalization and the immigration flows. Do you think there is any relation with, has anything changed since the past immigration flows and the current one? And everybody is talking about the economic slowdown in the U.S., do you think this is going to have any impact in the immigration well, I, to the U.S.? Thank you. The, the, um, I mean, the, the business cycle has not been eliminated, and, and, and we're, you know, in, uh, in the downside of the business cycle, so I'm sure the economy will bounce back. Um, how does globalization affect the debate? Well, I, I think uh, it affects it quite a bit. Um, um, take farm workers, for example. Some people say let's mechanize. Uh, all these jobs that the Mexicans are doing, uh, or, you know, the wages of picking grapes will rise to a level where an American will do them, or that job will leave. Well, I'm, globalization, I think, comes into play here. Um, uh, our growers here have to stay competitive, and they have global competitors. And the reason I want that farmhand job to stay here is because that farmhand is creating two or three jobs in the surrounding economy, jobs typically held by American, sales and packaging and equipment manufacturing. The farmhand job goes, jeopardizes those other jobs. That's why I'd rather have that job done here. But the, the, the fact of the matter is, if there is no farm worker here to do that job, there's a very good chance that that job will go away, that the grower will move where he can find labor at a rate where he can, allow, where he can stay competitive globally. So there's more chance of that happening today, I think, than in the past as a consequence of globalization. Michael, you got anything to add? To- well, I would just add the, the, the point that I – repeat the point I made at the end of my little presentation, which is, uh, yeah, there is – immigration historically, at least, has been somewhat responsive to changes in the business cycle, and I think uh, – 
I expect that it is to some extent today. But there's also spiritual factors. Um, Southern blacks did not move white for 65 years after the civil rights or the, the Civil War in any very appreciable numbers because they didn't feel they were welcome. They didn't feel it was this and that. Then from 1940 to 65, it becomes for Southern blacks, so for very many Southern blacks, uh, in Nicholas Lemon's book titled The Promised Land. Then in 1965, just as the South is being changed by civil rights laws and by economic factors, um, that migration, which was huge for years, ceases in almost in an instant. Um, I think there are spiritual factors as well as economic factors, cultural factors. There are cultural factors, if you want to call them that, behind today's immigrations. And I don't believe that I understand them fully, and I want to learn more about them. Uh, and I'll report in my next book. I, I would – thank you. I, uh, please give a hand to our speakers. I, I, I would invite you all to stick around for two very important reasons. One, our speakers are going to stick around, and you can buttonhole them with that question you were dying to ask, and Jason is going to be uh, signing his books out there. And secondly, we have a complimentary uh, lunch upstairs. So thank you very much.